have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 21. We are picking up where we left off last Lord's Day in Genesis 21, and we are uh, resuming our series uh, at verse 22, and we're going to read down to the end of the chapter to verse 34, Genesis 21, 22 to 34, and I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of scripture open and be reading along with me. If you're using a copy of the church Bible, you'll find that on page 15. And I invite you to turn there with me. Before we do look at God's word together, let me pray for us once again for the blessing on his word. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are the covenant God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every blessing so that we would be a blessing to the nations. We pray, our God, that you would do a great and mighty work among us, that you would do as you have promised to do, that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word, that you would transform us and conform us to the image of Christ. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be exalted. We pray that you would pour out your mighty power among us by your spirit. We pray that you would change us and that you would make us fruitful for every good word and work. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 21, beginning in verse 22, and no sooner has Abraham sent away Isaac at the uh, requirement, demand of his wife, and the affirmation of God that now we read, at that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants, or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal kindly with so you will deal with me, and with, and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, "I will swear." When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, "I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me. I have not heard of it until today." So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of the seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Fickle, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, in uh, his 1536 preface to the Institutes of the Christian Religion, John Calvin has a quite lengthy dedication to the King of France. Uh, Two years prior to the publication of the Institutes, severe persecution broke out in France against the Protestants, many of whom were challenging uh, Roman Catholic ideas about the the Mass and what the the Lord's Supper meant. And as that uh, severe persecution was increasing, Calvin himself fled to Geneva and then, being rejected there, went to Basel, and from Basel wrote this dedication to the king of France. And it's a quite interesting 
an important work in church history because in that preface, uh, Calvin very respectfully addresses the king of France and essentially says to him, let us live and we will do you good. That's a very cursory, uh, much abbreviated way of saying what Calvin is pleading with the king of France to do. Let us live and we'll do you good. Essentially, God will use us for your good. Um, Now, here in the text in front of us, we don't have Abraham approaching Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, in Gerar. As he is sojourning in the land, we actually have Abimelech now coming to Abraham and essentially saying to Abraham, live with us because we believe that if you do, it will be good for us. He recognizes something about Abraham and God's dealings with Abraham. He recognizes that there's something that God is doing that would be good in uh, the interaction in which he has with Abraham, though he doesn't understand fully exactly what is happening and why God is doing everything. Now, this passage comes uh, in between two of the great passages in Genesis. I was joking with Chuck. I think Chuck and Pastor Chuck and Pastor Brian reserved this passage for me because the two great passages are on the other side of this passage, and yet this passage serves as a bridge between Abraham receiving the covenant promises and having Isaac and seeing the fulfillment of that promise, and then God telling him to send Ishmael away. And, and then on the other side of this passage is God telling him to offer up Isaac. And it sits right between those two great moments, difficult moments, painful moments, in Abraham's life. And yet there are a world of lessons here. Uh, We're going to see two things this morning as we consider this passage together. First, we're going to consider the blessing of Abraham. And then secondly, we're going to see how this text sets out the hope of Abraham, the blessing of Abraham and the hope of Abraham. We'll notice there in verse 22 that this is tied to everything that went before. Moses tells us at that time. At what time? At the time in which Abraham has received those promises and has received the son of promise, Isaac, and has sent away Ishmael. Now, Remember, Abimelech has already met with Abraham. We've already had an encounter before Abraham receives that promise. And they had that tense encounter in which Abraham has lied about Sarah and told Sarah to lie to Abimelech for their preservation and their safety. And God has sent plagues on the Philistines and on Abimelech and on all in his house and on the women in the land. And it's not gone well for Abimelech. And then the Lord has visited Abimelech, and he's, he's told him that this is his prophet and that he's to give him back his wife. And, and then remember, strangely, Abraham benefits. Abimelech's plagued, even though Abraham's the one that's lied. And yet Abimelech gives Abraham more possessions, and uh, the covenant promises are preserved, and Abraham is preserved, and Abimelech has seen something of God's work in Abraham's life, even when Abraham isn't doing what he's supposed to be doing. Because the blessing of God is not ultimately dependent on what you do, but on what God has promised. That's the whole point. Um, Lot is not blessed because of what he does. He's blessed because of God's mercy and covenant promises to Abraham. Abraham is blessed because God's covenant promises. 
Now, there is more. Abraham is no doubt dwelling here in this land that at this time belongs to the Philistines, and he's been there for some time, and God has now brought uh, Isaac to him. And, and no doubt Abimelech and his men have in some sense been looking on. Abraham tells us that they're still interacting. There's this well that gets plugged up. We'll look at that in a minute. But they, they see what's happening in Abraham's life, and they see a 90-year-old woman have a baby. That's not normal. That's, not stra- that's, that's unusual, to say the least. And, and that's the point. And, and maybe they had heard about the promises of God, that, that God was going to give Abraham and Sarah a promised son uh, from whom a redeemer would come. Supernaturally, when they were past the age of bearing. And, and now that's happened. And Abimelech and his men have no doubt seen that blessing on Abraham. And one can only speculate what Abimelech must have been thinking. He must have assumed this man is, is special. God is doing something special in him. And so notice that he comes to Abraham and he comes with uh, Phicol, the, the commander of his army, and he says to him the first thing, God is with you in all that you do. That's, that's the opening of this section. That's how we make sense of this section. Abimelech says to him, I know God is for you. Now, that's not always the case. The world doesn't always look at Christians and say, I know that God is for you. Um, David had those experiences where the wicked in Israel said to him, where is your God? No one's for David. Look at David in caves and look at David hiding from Saul and Saul himself um, heaping scorn on David. And yet there are other times, as in this instance here, important timing here, where the world and the rulers of the world look on at believers and they see God is for them. And God is doing something in them and through them and with them. And so Abimelech says to Abraham, Swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you should deal with me in the land where you have sojourned. Now, before we look at that, let me just say this. This interaction with Abimelech must have been a comfort to Abraham because Abraham's just sent away Ishmael. And I can't imagine how difficult it would be to send away your 13-year-old son and to send them away, presumably never going to see them again. And Abraham's done that. Abraham has had to rescue Lot several times. Abraham has had to leave his own father's house. He's had to leave his people. He's had to be separated from Lot. He's had to deliver Lot. He's had to see the destruction on Sodom and Gomorrah. He's had to wrestle with the barrenness of his wife and the long waiting. Now he's had to send away Ishmael. Abraham has had a difficult life of waiting and separation. And now, all of a sudden, God is bringing Abimelech to him, and he's saying, can we live together? And can we live peaceably together? Can we have a time of rest and respite for Abraham? Um, now, Abimelech does not altogether trust Abraham. It's very interesting. He first says to him, uh, I know that God is with you and blessing you and all that you do. And then he says, don't hurt us. 
<laughs> now, why, why is he doing that? He's doing that because he's already been dealt with a little bit unjustly by Abraham. Remember, Abraham lied, and God brought plagues on Abimelech. And then also remember, Abraham is a fairly powerful man. He had an army of 318 men earlier. He defeats uh, Ketaleomer and the, the five kings uh, in the, the valley, the asphalt valley, and he brought back Sodom and the kings of uh, the four kings that were defeated. And Abraham is a pretty significant individual, and he has a fairly large, um, uh, industrious uh, caravan with him, and those men respect him. And, and here, Abimelech is not quite sure whether he can trust Abraham, and yet he asks him to enter in uh, and swear to him before God, by God. Notice verse 23, swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me. Now, I mentioned that Abraham probably found this a comfort. I think also there's instruction here in what God is doing with Abraham. Um, Abraham's whole life since he was converted and called in Genesis 12 has been separation. Leave your father's house. Now God separates him from Lot. Now God separates him from Ishmael. And, And I wonder, Abraham probably could be tempted at this point to think that the Christian life and the life of a believer is one in which we isolate ourselves from the world entirely and we live nomadic, uh, uh, extremely isolated, ascetic lifestyles. Uh, that, that seems to me like a fairly viable option for Abraham's thought process at this point in sending away Ishmael. Um, I had a friend I was talking to this week about this passage, and he said he had grown up in uh, one of those churches that had a very extreme separation mindset, and, and that one of the men, uh, friends of his, had said, you know, you can never be too separated for God. And, and my friend said to me, well, the Pharisees were. <laughs> um, you can be too separated in your own mind from the world. Here, Abraham, I think, is realizing that there's something in the covenant promise back in chapter 12 when God said, I will bless you and you will be a blessing to the nations. I think Abraham is processing this and he's seeing foreshadowings of God's promise already being fulfilled in Abimelech coming to him and asking him to dwell with him in peace. It's a little picture, isn't it, of the nations, the Jews and the Gentiles in Christ, the son of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, who comes and interestingly prays for his disciples and asks his father, I do not that you take them out of the world. He doesn't say the church. He doesn't say, I do not pray that you take them out of the church. (laughs) I do not pray that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Here, Abraham is learning the principle in a very real sense of covenant evangelism. He is going to have to live with heathen nations and even other rulers. And though he is a prince and a king by God's grace, and he is going to be the father of the nations, Abraham humbly submits himself to the request of Abimelech. Very interesting principle. Abraham doesn't have an over-realized eschatology. He doesn't say to Abimelech, I'll make the demands, and you'll submit to me. John Calvin makes a huge point about this. 
he says it is too well known how great a desire of exercising authority prevails among men. Hence, the greater praise is due to the modesty of Abraham, who not only abstains from what belongs to another man, but even offers uncommanded in his own mind he regards as due to another in virtue of his office. Abraham uh, submits to Abimelech's request that he would swear, and he swears to him. And then Abraham goes further, and, and after reproving Abimelech, and we'll come to that in a second, he, he, he enters into a covenant arrangement with Abimelech, which is a very condescending thing on the part of Abraham, to assure Abimelech that he will do what he is called to do during his time of his sojourning. Um, notice now, though, that uh, though Abraham does um, submit to Abimelech's request, and by the way, I would just as an aside note that Abimelech doesn't bring the commander of his army for no reason. Again, he doesn't really trust Abraham, and he's saying to Abraham, this could not go well, and I want you to know how serious I am. Abraham nevertheless submits himself swears by the Lord that he will deal justly and mercifully and kindly with Abimelech and his people and that they will dwell together in the land. But notice, notice that there's this little uh, interesting caveat in verse 25. When Abraham reproved Abimelech, it might be better translated, then Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. Now, in the ancient Near East, your water was your livelihood. Uh, Abraham's men dug their own wells. This wasn't inappropriate. They did the labor. They found the water. In, in one very real sense, this was Abraham's water. And yet, Abimelech's men were going around and plugging up these wells, and what that was was a sign of hostility. It was a sign of um, cultural rejection. It was even a sign of seeking to do harm in taking away uh, what is necessary for life and survival. And it's very interesting, even though Abraham humbly and um, beautifully submits to Abimelech and his request, he doesn't, he doesn't, um, he doesn't do so in some sort of uh, passive way just for the sake of peace. It's an interesting little lesson here. William Still, who is a great Scottish uh, pastor and theologian of the 20th century, wrote this. This is so, this is marvelous. He said, a lesser man may have hushed up for the sake of peace. He, man, he probably wouldn't have mentioned the wrong that he believed Abimelech's men were doing to him. A lesser man might have hushed up for the sake of peace, but no, it had to be dealt with between two men of integrity. Because of the reasonableness of the king's mind, it was dealt with with a treaty. This is a perfect example of how two men of moral statue can deal with difficulties to the mutual enrichment of both of them and to a satisfying, even more than satisfactory solution. Here we are taught in our relations with men that we don't have to just uh, hush up for the sake of peace. Uh, godly individuals work through difficulties and challenges. Here Abraham confronts Abimelech. Abimelech receives the confrontation. Abraham then responds by saying, look, for the sake of peace, I'm going to enter into a covenant with you. He takes sheep. He takes oxen. He sets apart seven of the sheep. I know. You don't get it. I don't get it either fully. He sets apart seven sheep. He says, 
This is going to be a sign to you. This is going to be a mark of the covenant that we are entering into. Now notice that Abimelech doesn't get it. Verse 29, fascinating little aside. Abimelech says to Abraham, what is the meaning of the seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? And he says, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand that it may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, the place is called Beersheba. Now, there's lots of questions here. There's a lot that commentators and theologians are divided on. There's a reason why if you go pull up 60 sermon audio series on Genesis, most people don't preach on this passage. There is a reason. (laughs) It's difficult. Uh, Was Abraham sacrificing? Was there sacrifice involved? Maybe. We're not told that there was. Did he give those ewe lambs to Abimelech um, uh, in a sense uh, going above and beyond what he needed to and in a sense paying for the well that he had rightfully dug himself and had claimed to? Maybe, probably, we don't know. Um, What we do know is that Abraham is reflecting, and this is a very important point as we consider the blessing of Abraham, Abraham is reflecting on a horizontal level what God had done with him on a vertical level. Where does Abraham even get the idea of covenant? You know, there are many writers who will say, well, in the ancient Near East, there were surrounding nations, and they had suzerain treaties, and uh, Israel lived in propinquity, proximity to these nations, and they gleaned from them, and God appropriated from the nations these covenants, and by appropriating from them, taught his people what he was doing. But here you have Abraham entering into a covenant with Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, and the king of the Philistines doesn't know what a covenant is of this kind. And, and I think Abraham is reflecting something of that horizontal uh, dimension of God's covenant mercy. Abraham is living, if I can put it this way, Abraham is living every interaction of his life as he is able, by faith, in light of God's covenantal dealings with him. And he is even seeing those around him, even potentially unbelieving Gentiles like Abimelech in light of God's covenant dealings with him and as objects who need the same mercy that he's received. Um, As I noted already, I think this is in some sense uh, sort of covenantal evangelism that Abraham is engaged in. Um, He is teaching Abimelech something about God's promise that the nations would come under the rule and reign of the son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. And, you know, Jesus makes a big deal about this, doesn't he? It's very interesting. This comes right after Ishmael is cast out. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus says uh, that um, many will come from north and south and east and west and will recline at table with Abraham, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out. The fleshly descendant of Abraham is cast out, and here Abraham is going to dwell in covenantal peace for a time with a Gentile. I think it's absolutely a foreshadowing of what God has promised Abraham he's going to do. Now, uh, the name of the place, Beersheba, again, there's debate. It it might mean uh, seven wells. It probably more properly means well of the oath. Um, 
it is the southern portion of Israel. If you read through the Old Testament, Israel, the land of Israel, is almost always um, uh, tagged as, given its geographical proximity, from Dan to Beersheba. Abraham is a southerner now. He's moved into the deep parts of Mississippi. He's, he's g- gone down real south. Um, now, what's the point of mentioning Beersheba? Well, I think, I think there's enormous, enormous theological lessons here for us. And so secondly, we're going to consider here the hope of Abraham. Now, uh, Beersheba borders the wilderness of uh, Zin and Egypt. And when at the end of this book, Jacob and his sons go down into Egypt and follow Joseph down, they do so from Beersheba. It's, it's the last stopping point before they go down into Egypt. It's the last place before they go to the nations, before they go outside the land of promise. Now, here's the really interesting thing. Who has, who has the title claim to the land of Israel at this point? Abraham does. God has said, I'm going to give you this land. And yet, Abraham understands something about the covenant promises of God and the eternal purposes of God. And Abraham is willing to dwell in the land with Abimelech, with other peoples and other nations, because Abraham understands that there's something beyond this land, a better hope. The writer of Hebrews makes a big deal about this, and the writer of Hebrews says they understood that they weren't looking for a city uh, here and now, a lasting city. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the one to come. And, and by faith, they lived as sojourners and strangers and foreigners in the earth. Those who do such, the writer of Hebrews says, uh, profess that they are uh, pilgrims and strangers. They seek a better city. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God because he has prepared a city for them. And he'll, he'll tell the New Testament believers in the book of Hebrews that they were not made perfect apart from us, that we together are hoping in that better city. Abraham is doing that. Abraham doesn't say to Abimelech, this is mine. God gave me this. You see that God's blessing me? This is mine. He doesn't have a dominion theology in the here and now. He has a heavenly hope. It's a really awesome picture. You know, do you know the only land that Abraham ever took possession of was the area where he plants this tamarisk tree, which we'll talk about briefly in a second, and a burial place for he and Sarah, for Isaac and Rebekah, for Jacob and Leah, and that's it. Now, what's the point of that? Um, The point of the burial place is simple. He's hoping in the resurrection. He's not hoping in obtaining the land of Israel physically, geographically, in the here and now. When the Apostle Paul actually comes to speak about God's covenant promises to Abraham, he says in Romans 4.13 that God promised him that he would be heir of Israel. No, heir of the world. Heir of the world. said that the land of Israel was just a tiny little deposit for the Redeemer to come in order to bless the nations so that Jesus could say, the meek, 
the sons and the daughters of Abraham shall inherit the earth. They shall be heirs of the world, the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Um, Abraham is looking forward to that. There's a great theologian, uh, 19th century theologian at Princeton, um, Gerhardus Voss, who has this really beautiful statement. He says, um, he says, uh, only the predestined inhabitants of the celestial city can dwell in simple tents as kings and princes to God. Man, that's beautiful. Only the, only the predestined inhabitants of the inter- eternal city can dwell in simple tents as kings and princes to God. Well, what is the point of the tree? Because here we have a tree. Look at the end of this chapter. Abraham, verse 33, planted a tamarisk tree. Um, we can't be entirely sure. It might be an echo of Eden. Uh, it might, in that sense, be Abraham's Ebenezer. Instead of a stone, he plants a tree and says, Thus far the Lord has helped me, and God will restore the garden and his promises. He will, he will reopen paradise for his people. I think there's something there. Um, Abraham may also just be expressing confidence and hope that God will fulfill his promise in giving him the inheritance um, and bringing about the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. But notice, as the passage ends now, notice this, that Moses tells us, verse 34, Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Now, um, Abraham is going to live here for about 10 years. Uh, God is going to, right after this, call him to offer up Isaac. Um, it's the longest time of respite that Abraham's had in his sojourning. Um, his has been a constant moving around. Arguably the longest time in one place uh, in the land. He stays there many days, Moses says. Uh, No doubt that period is there to help him instruct Isaac, to give him some stability in raising Isaac, teaching him the Christian faith. As we heard uh, Pastor Barrett this morning asking the parents of those children that we baptized if they would take vows to raise their children in the nurture and the training and admonition of the Lord, they would bring them up in the doctrines of our holy religion. They would pray with and for them and endeavor to live, uh, set a godly example before them. Um, Abraham has been called to do that, and God is giving him a time to do that with Isaac. Um, But I think also, just on a more foundational level and principle we can take away this morning, the Christian life is a hard life. The Christian life is full of trials, hardship, difficulty, suffering, persecution, betrayal, want, need, lack, loss. That's what our God promises us. And it's not fun. It's not fun for me to tell believers that. It's not fun to experience that. Um, and yet, in our sojourning, our God gives us little, little times of rest along the way. Isn't that beautiful? Love the way Psalm uh, 84 puts it. Uh, as they pass through the valley of Baca, all those who have their hearts set on pil- pilgrimage, They make it a stream. The valleys of weeping become valleys of streams, times of refreshing. Now, 
How do we apply this to us this morning? Well, first, I would say that we, as uh, the rightful sons and daughters of Abraham, are to live our lives in light of God's covenant promises. He has said, I will be a God to you and your descendants after you. I will bless you and I will make you a blessing. And the only reason, maybe not the only reason, but the big reason God didn't save you and take you immediately to glory was not so you would isolate yourself from the world, but that you would be a blessing to the world and that you would carry the gospel out to the nations. That's why we're here. That's why he's left us here. Uh, Simon Peter talks about if you've been blessed, then be a blessing. You've been blessed by God in order to be a blessing to others. We are to be salt and light, the Savior says, to the unbelieving world around us by living among and being different than and, and seeking to be a blessing to all those around us for the sake of the gospel and the advancement of the kingdom. I think, secondly, we ought to be conscious in all that we do that we are God's covenant people and that he is doing something in our lives even when we can't understand exactly what it is. And oftentimes it comes right after very difficult periods in our life. I think there's a big principle there. God is doing something really marvelous with Abraham right in between two very difficult times in his life. The casting out of Ishmael, the offering up of Isaac. And then finally, I would just note that we are to live as pilgrims and sojourners here. You know, it's too easy for us to get weighed down, um, too comfortable, go through days and weeks, just comfortable. This is not our home. Uh, the great Anglican theologian, Calvinistic theologian, J.C. Ryle, they say used to go to his window every morning and he'd look out and he'd say, maybe today, Lord, maybe today. He was waiting for the return of Christ. How many days, months go by and we don't think about the coming of Christ or this not being our home? Um, Abraham seemed to have been conscious. This is not it. I'm just passing through. God is going to do what he's promised. I'm going to say this as I close this morning. That is what makes the difference between an extremely fruitful Christian and a professing believer who is not fruitful. That makes the great difference. Are we heavenly-minded seeking a city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God? Abraham was. God would have us do that. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would do for us what you did for Abraham. We are grateful, our God, for how you have given us these vignettes in Scripture so that our souls might be strengthened in all that you are, in all that you have promised, in all that you promised Abraham, and in all that you have fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Lord, how desperately we need you to renew our minds, to remind us that we are pilgrims and strangers in the earth, to make us a people whose hearts are set on pilgrimage and on being in Zion in glory with you. We pray that during the time of our sojourning, Lord, you would make us faithful, that you would make us a people who long to see those around us come to know you. Please burden our hearts with a desire to live among 
in order to be a blessing to the unbelieving nations. We pray, our God, that you would use us, that you would use this church, and that you would do this for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.